pray for Jim Lake, uh, Kristen out in Las Vegas, uh, our missionary Ricardo, and yeah, all the kids head over to Bible Explorer class. Uh, we want to continue to pray for Greg in St. Louis and Kimberly's dad, uh, for Tracy and her uh, situation. Um, Kim's, uh, Kim's mom, I haven't got an update on that, but we want to continue to pray for her. Uh, and of course, most of us know that Sean's dad passed away this last week. Pray for that family. And I'll be keeping you updated on, uh, they're going to have a memorial service here sometime next month or a month after. And we're, we'll host that for them and, and I'll keep you posted on that. And then Penny Hansinger, I talked to her this week. She sounded terrible. I mean, she was really sick. And so we need to pray for her. And then uh, Sean Wiggins, uh, I saw him today. They came to church this morning, and he's had some real struggles um, with his health and had had emergency surgery. So we want to keep him on the prayer list um, and keep him uh, uh, before the Lord. So thank you for being here today. As I said, we're in John chapter 11, and we started it last week, and we had... uh, in my estimation, a very good, solid uh, introduction to this chapter. We, uh, hopefully, throughout this whole study of John, uh, we have seen how important it is to train our eyes to look at what's really going on in the Bible. And we're going to get some more examples of that today. We call that insight. We call that gleaning perspective about uh, the Word of God. Our ability to see what God is trying to show us. And I've said it many, many times, and I'll continue to say it, you never look at the Bible at just face value. There's always something under the surface, either historically, doctrinally, or inspirationally, that he, he wants us to see. And real ability with the Bible is to be able to do that. My goal for you is for you to learn how to you, you use your Bible um, as it uses you. When you get into the ministry, you're going to find, and this is just the way it is, there's nothing you're going to do to ever fix it, it's just the nature of things, you're going to find that people will use you. Most of you who work with me in ministry and you're working with people, many times it doesn't work out with them. Uh, They're what I call the takers in ministry. They want everything, but they don't want to put anything back into it. And many times they'll use you, they'll use any church, or they'll use you know, to get what they want. And I, and I totally understand that. And I, you know, that doesn't make me angry. I, I just I accept that as the status quo in dealing with people in human nature. But you know what? If we allow people to use us for the ministry's sake, we most certainly should allow God to use us uh, for his honor and glory. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where um, allowing God to get the honor and glory through whatever is going on in our lives um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I watched uh, and talk about learning your Bible and understanding and getting a, uh, you know, a perspective of it. I, I watched just enough of the game last week for them to win. I shut it off for a large portion because that was a guarantee that they would, they would get ahead. If I watch the whole game, they lose. And, uh, you know, and I, and I, I, anything I see in life, I have learned this years ago. Anything I see in life, no matter what it may be, I always try to find some biblical, and I'm not so super spiritual, I don't mean that way, but, I, there, you know, 
life is a game. You do know that, don't you not? And it's, it's all how you play the game. And so whatever you watch, I mean, I don't care if it's, you know, I don't care if it's football or baseball or basketball. If you stop and think about it, it's all just like the Christian life and the game of life. And when any sports you play, you got a set of absolute rules that you have to go by. And just because you don't like the rules, if you violate them, you get penalized for it. And that's the way it is in the game of life. In baseball, you have an umpire. In, in the Christian life, in the game of life, you have the Word of God. Now, you know, in football, you have the referees. And in basketball, you have the referees. What they say goes. They're the absolute authority in the game of football, baseball, or whatever you do. Well, in the game of life, we have an authority. And uh, it, it's a thing where it, it lays everything out for us clearly. So I was watching it last week. I'm trying to see this thing here, and a great thought hit me. Now, Alex, you're not going to care much about this, but just bear with me, son. I love you to death. But, you know, whatever we think of Patrick Mahomes, what he did last week was quite incredible. What he did last week was quite incredible. I mean, I got the last part of the game. Here we are. There's just like one minute to go, and we're winning by whatever we're winning, five points, six points. I can't remember what it was. Well, in most games, you think that, man, but not in this game. They came back down and scored again and left us down by three was just 13 seconds to go. Now, I, I, you know, how do you win a game in 13 seconds? And so I'm watching this kid, and I don't know anything about him. I, I don't know much about football, baseball. You know, I, I don't. I, I've told you many, many times, I still don't understand why to be an umpire in baseball, you've got to be named Al. There's things in life that really bug me that I've never figured out. I'm right in the middle of watching a good war movie. And right in the most part, this Amber Alert comes on my TV. And that really infuriates me. Let me. Do you know how many times Amber's been abducted? <laughs> What's wrong with this girl? I mean, every time it's her. And, and things like that just, you know, I don't know a lot of things about life. But anyway, I watched this kid. 13 seconds, he goes all the way down to kick a field goal and win the game. And I watched that, and I don't care. I really didn't care who won or who lost. I, I just like, but I, I, I like to learn things, and I watched that. And I watched this kid with 13 seconds march down the field as cool as a cucumber, he never panicked. He never seeming like he felt the pressure. He stepped up there and simply relied on what he knew to get the job done. Now, that's not the way it was upstairs in my home. <laughs> Mahone's felt no pressure. She felt all the pressure that he had not felt. The dog thought, he, she, he was mad at her and hid. I come upstairs, they're losing. I get clobbered because of my mouth in the pulpit of saying that they were going to lose. <laughs> I'm getting blamed for it. 
Now, when they finally won because I got no apology, nothing, no thanks, no anything. I come up when it's, it's going back and forth. She says she's got to go to the hospital because she can't breathe. She's, she's, she's exasperating. You know, she's, she's, I, I was taking a nap. I heard thunder. It wasn't thunder. It was her stomping her feet up there. What I'm saying is this. Old Patrick, he just got in there. He did what he needed to do. He took him down. They kicked the field goal, tied the ball game, and, you know, they, they, they won the ball game. He stayed with what he'd been trained to do in tough situations. And the thought hit me. That's the game of football. But we're all caught up in the game of life. And you know what I learned from that? Every one of us in the game of life ought to be able to do with the Bible what that kid can do with the football. We ought to be so in tune to the fundamentals, the principles, understanding the circumstances and situations that when tough times really come, instead of falling apart and blowing the game, we just focus on what we got to do, get down and get the job done that God's called us to do. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, wow, we need to do with the Bible what that young man does with the football. And then I, I saw the second thing, which is right up there. You know, in life, in the game of life, it's usually not the big things that mess us up. It usually is the little things that lead to bigger things. And I watched those, and again, I don't know nothing about football, but I, I'm smart enough to know that when, it was, when they only had 13 seconds and they're down by three and they kicked off to the Chiefs, if they would have kicked it to a runner and let him run it back, they'd have, they'd have chewed up four, five, six seconds off the clock, and there was no way that they could have, could have done what they did. When they kicked it in the end zone, then they come out and had the full 13 seconds. Now, maybe they thought nobody on planet Earth could do it in 13 seconds. I don't know. But that's where they lost the game. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, you know what? It just takes one little miscue, one little misstep, one little thing in your life and my life in the game of life that we don't see and make the wrong call that can lead to losing the whole game. And you know what? There's not a whole lot of difference between the game of life and the game of football and, uh, it, or baseball or whatever because it all follows the same protocol. And then last week, you know, I, in John chapter 11, I, I laid out the cast of characters for you. We now have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Lazarus. We have Mary and her sister Martha, both sisters of Lazarus. And how that uh, this story, it, it goes through and around these people. And God uses things like this to show us, in this particular case, God's dealing with a nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. And we, we laid this out last week. And then again at the second coming of Christ. Now, you want to remember this. When you read a book, any book, any book you read is going to have a central theme to it. And all the other info in the book 
is going to support that central theme. And by the way, for you young guys that are learning to preach and learning to, you know, teach the Word of God, that, that's the same protocol that, that you use. You know, good preaching, good solid uh, sermons, uh, they start with a theme, something that you want to give to somebody, something that in your mind you say, when they go home, when I'm done, this is what I want them to remember, and then everything else you say and everything else you do and the verses that you give them all are going to support that theme to bring about the idea that you want to give them. And I get it. There's different kinds of messages. <clears throat> you have <clears throat> messages on the books of the Bible, which we did on the Internet years ago, and people still follow that along. You have verse by verse. That's what we're doing in John. And then you have what I call topical messages or sermons. That's where you'll take a subject and you'll develop it and you use it. And that's what, honestly, that's what most of you right now are, gonna, are doing. And you'll see it, uh, you know, when we go down to, the, down to the, uh, the, the ladies' ministry down there, many of you, that's what you want to do. You don't have a lot of time, so you want to get one little thought and leave it with those ladies. And then everything else you do is going to lead them and understand in a better way that thought. You'll have the ability to afterwards to sit out and talk with them and give them any, any insight that they need on it. But that's what our goal is going to be. That's exactly what you do in discipleship. We have those lessons that are built around a theme. And when you disciple somebody, you want to give them the theme so everything else you're doing leads to that. And having said that, when it comes to the Bible, God's book, it's no different. The Bible has a theme to it. And I've told you this before. The theme of the Bible will be a throne and a kingdom, making the Bible, first and foremost, a political book. And in the Bible, that theme is called the day of the Lord. Now, I know you know all this, but bear with me. I'm going someplace here. And it's called the day of the Lord, the day, that day, all through your Bible. And everything else that you read, where we're at in John chapter 11, wherever you go, I don't care where it is, underlying will be support to that final theme that God is trying to accomplish. And that's why the Gospels are so filled with the examples of this. You know, the day, the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there's over 800 references to it because it's the theme of the Bible. And trying to learn your Bible, trying to get in the Bible without establishing that theme first and knowing where he's going first is just going to get you all messed up because there's everything in the Bible dovetails back to that. That day when Christ comes back, when he establishes the throne, all the opposition on planet earth will be gone. And God now begins to fulfill his original plan. And you'll find most of God's people, bless their hearts, they're good people, and, but they have no idea what that plan is. You know, we read verses in Psalms. Sean asked me a great question uh, the other day when, uh, about a verse, and it just fit into where I was at. So thank you, Sean. But in Psalms 118, verse 24, this is a verse that we all like to use. It says, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And that is a favorite verse of the, 
the, the spiritual crowd, you know, the charismatics, the neo-evangelicals. Let, let, let us be glad, you know, on all that stuff. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice and all that good stuff. You know, the atheists came up one uh, where they had a number that Christians could call and there'd be some sweet Christian voice on the other end and say, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And that was supposed to get your day started. The atheists came up with a number that you called and nobody answered. And if the truth of the matter was, that verse really doesn't work good for me because if it was really for me, it would be honestly and say, this is the day the Lord hath made. You're going to get it in the neck. <laughs> you see, when it says, this is the day the Lord hath made, let us be glad and rejoice. That day, that's the second coming of Christ. Notice it says, this is the day the Lord hath made. You know in the Bible where he made that day? The Bible shows you the day that day was manufactured. We'll see it in a little bit. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. That is the second coming of Christ going into the millennium and everybody rejoicing. Now, you know, I get it. We're saved. We're Christians. And, you know, we live above the circumstances. So no matter what happens in our lives, this is the day the Lord hath made. That's the spiritual side of it. But you know what? Everything in the Bible points to that day. And that day unfolds in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of world history. It's the place where life began. It's the place where history is playing out in the New Testament. And then it moves into what we know as the Byzantine Empire. Then it moves into what we know as the Ottoman Empire. And then it moves right into where we're at today. And, of course, it's the place where God's government will be established eternally, past, present, and future, just like we talked about last week. Now, we as Christians, and I get this, and we talk about this all the time, but I like to keep this stuff before you. We as Christians, we lose sight of that. And we lose sight of that because we put our emphasis on the first coming of Christ and his death on the cross and our salvation that we get from that. And I get it. As, as a Christian, this day will be our emphasis for me personally. Because that's the day I got, I got my salvation laid out for me. If it wasn't for that day for me, I'd still be lost and on my way to hell or maybe in hell. So that day to me, I get it. But you got to keep the Bible in a perspective and have the insight. And... Uh, so because of that, we tend to look at everything in the Bible, everything that God's doing, and view it through the kaleidoscope of the cross of Calvary when Christ came and died on the cross. And we make that the most important day in the Bible. It may be the most important day in your life and my life, but I want to tell you right now, that's not the day God's talking about when he talks about the day. I've told you rule number one when it comes to your Bible. Never view, never view the Bible or what God is doing or New Testament. Uh, never view what God is doing or the Bible through our New Testament Christianity experience. Because Christianity is only 2,000 years out of a 7,000-year plan. God's day is not the day that his son came down and was brutalized by man, beaten, whipped, and crucified, scourged, 
spearing the side, hung on a cross. That's not God's day. That's my day. God's day is the day his son comes back, steps into Jerusalem, and is crowned king of kings and lord of lords, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of his Christ. Now that's the day God's looking for. You see, that's perspective. And the first thing you learn uh, is that everything in your Bible will point to that theme. All four Gospels do. And when Paul writes, he puts all of it into an understandable format for us to follow. If we're paying attention. And, you know, when Paul wrote the book of Romans... You know, I don't know if you ever, we talked a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night about the importance of the order of the books in the Bible. I, I, I don't know, and I ran you through, you know, Second Chronicles 36 up to Psalms and, and uh, into uh, Proverbs and all that and showed you how that's the premillennial return of Christ by the order of the books in the Bible. But the New Testament's the same way. The New Testament is God's structural outline for you and for me if we're paying attention. I mean, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know that that's all dealing with the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. We're studying, though, this in Bible Institute. And then at the end of those four books, we have the Acts. The book of Acts brings us from the Old Testament into the New Testament, from the Jew to the Gentile church. And so the next book that he writes us after that is the book of Romans. Before he ever, and you'll notice that Romans is not written to the church. Romans is written to all that be in Rome. Now when he writes 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the rest of them, they're all written to churches. It's not in Romans. Why? Because Romans is the book, after the book of Acts, as the progression of the church goes, before you get into the churches, he laid out a book that is the doctrinal handbook for every one of us what we should believe. Then he gets into the churches. And in those books, he shows the churches how to use what he gave them in Romans. Now, you've got to get this down at some point in your life. Or you're going to be like the little rat in a maze that just keeps bumping into the false walls trying to find the cheese at the end of the tunnel. The key to the end of the tunnel is understanding what God is doing, where you're at in it, and how he's working through this thing. And the reason why so many of God's people are messed up in the things that they're messed up on. And when you get messed up in your Bible, hey, it affects every aspect of your life. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your marriage. It'll affect your kids. It'll affect every aspect of your life because everything we supposed to do as a Christian go back to the book. And the book goes back to a theme. It's not, not complicated. So we see in Romans, in chapter 1, he talks about us Gentiles and explains a lot of things about why we are the way we are. When he gets in chapter 2, he talks about the Jews and he explains how they are the way they are. And then in chapter 3, he starts to explain how that the Jews look for God one way and the Gentiles look for God another way. And he's saying now that we're in the New Testament that will never solve 
the man's problem, whether he be Jew or Gentile, the way he's looking for it. Oh, then he develops chapter 4 and chapter 5. Wow, wow. And in those two chapters, he's moving through this thing. In those two chapters, he now tells us that the answer to your problems and my problems as Gentiles and the answer to the Jews' issues will be getting God's righteousness. And we get God's righteousness by the day you got saved. Because of the day you got saved, God gave you his righteousness. So after that, now we're moving right along. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, all the way up to the end of the book in chapter 16. Now he focuses on what you and I need to know to have a successful Christian life. He doesn't give us the doctrine of of anything but what you and I as Christians are supposed to believe in this church. When I built this church, building this church, and the men and women who were helping me do it, it comes back to the Bible. My fundamental doctrine that I'll teach is found in the book of Romans. Once he gets into everything else, he's showing you how to use what he gave you in the book of Romans. And that's the model that we should be following, not only as a church, but in your own individual life. But you've got to see. You've got to understand where it all starts. And it's a thing where, you know, it's a, it, it's a great pattern that God has laid out here. Now, in the middle of Romans, in the middle of everything that he's giving us as Christians, Paul then begins to deal with not only what we are to believe about the Bible, not only what we're to believe about salvation or righteousness or, or, or all the things that he deals with. When he gets to chapter 9, 10, and 11, now he focuses on this great book what you and I should understand about the nation of Israel, which takes us back to the very theme of what God is doing in the Bible. There's a lot of people messed up today on the nation of Israel. I, I, I have to deal with it all the time. I'll, I'll talk to people about it and they get this idea. And it all goes back to around the end of the 1800s. There was a guy by the name of Ted Garner Armstrong. And he came up with the idea of the heresy of what we call British Israelism. And that simply broken down means that the Jews that are over in the Holy Land now or the Jews that are around the world uh, are not the real Jews. The idea is that after the crucifixion that all the real key Jews left the Middle East and moved into Europe. Some teach they went to England or Scotland. Some think they went... And Anyway, the end of the day is the real Jews today in their estimation is not the Jews that are over in the Holy Land. The real Jews today are the Gentiles, that we have taken the place of the Jews. And it would be you, me, Europeans, that we are now the real Jews, and God, uh, we, we, we are the Jews, and God is all done with the nation of Israel. And I asked a guy, and, and all this is based on nothing in the Bible, of course, but it shows you how messed up they are and because they've never got the book of Romans down. And I asked a guy one time, 
I said, so what you're telling me is this, just so I'm clear. What you're telling me is that the Jews today are the Gentiles out of Europe and in America. And he says, yes, that's true. And I'm saying, so what you're saying is after Christ's death on the cross, the real Jews then moved from the Middle East into Europe and got amalgamated in with the Gentiles, and now they, uh, they, are, they are the real Jews. He says, yes. I said, okay. So let me ask you this. At the first coming of Christ, Jesus went to Jerusalem because that's where the Jews really were. So now you're saying after that, they all went to Europe. In 1885, whenever you're at, when the Zionist movement starts and God fulfills all those prophecies about Israel being restored, all of those Jews that are literal Jews, they go back to Jerusalem, not Europe. And when Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ, according to 800 places in the Old Testament, I don't know how many places in the New Testament, when Christ comes back at the second coming, he doesn't go to London. I know the, the Seventh-day or the Muslim guys, they think he's coming here to independence. 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 There's a tower there on the temple. And of course, you know, at the top of that tower is a blinking light. That's so God can find it. <laughs> and it's a thing where he ain't coming there either. You know where he's going? He's going to Jerusalem. Because that's where the real Jews are. That's where they will be. And that's where God has gotten them back because Jerusalem is the key. Had nothing to do with the Gentiles. But when you don't understand the book of Romans, easy to get to that. I've talked to those guys many, many times and they can't give you one verse to support anything out of the Bible that they say because it has nothing to do with the Bible. It's all off the internet. It's all off some book some guy wrote. But it has nothing to do with the Word of God. And you know, and Paul gives us our proper understanding in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. It's a progression through the great handbook to you and me of what we are to believe, not only about doctrine for our salvation and our life and for our kids and for our family and for our marriages and for our jobs, but our understanding of God dealing with the nation of Israel. And you know, in Romans chapter 9, I've always thought this was an incredible chapter. He, he lists eight things in chapter 9 that the Jews were given. And he shows us in chapter 9 really how this mess started that we're dealing with in John chapter 11. And yeah, we will get there today, I promise you. But he, in chapter, he shows us eight things that the Jews had gotten from God that should have been the surefire aspect that they should have known that Jesus was their Messiah. First of all, the fact that they were adopted as a nation out of all the other nations on planet earth. Never happened before. And of course that'll take us back to around Genesis chapter 11 with the calling out of Abraham. The second thing, they had the glory of the miracles that God did that he did with no other nation. There isn't any other nation that can talk about the plagues with Egypt 
or the splitting of the Red Sea. Oh, my goodness, God stopping the sun and making the time go backwards. Are you kidding me? There's no other nation that God gave covenants to in the Old Testament other than the nation of Israel. And they knew what those covenants were. There's no other nation that received God's word and law. The Bible calls them in the book of Romans that the Jews were given the oracles of God. Nobody else got that. The fifth thing was the service of God. He gave them a priesthood form of worship built around a tabernacle that went straight to God. Nobody else got that in the history of the world. And then the sixth thing is God gave them the promises. The promises not only physically as a nation, but spiritually that no other nation ever got. And then the seventh thing, and you find in the book of Acts and, and the Gospels that the, they're always referring back to this to prove to Israel that they're wrong and Christ was right. It's the witness of the Old Testament fathers. You find it in Hebrews chapter 11 in that great chapter that we call God's Hall of Fame out of the Old Testament. You find when Peter preaches his five messages there in Acts chapter, first six chapter, he's constantly going back to the fathers. When Stephen preaches his final sermon in chapter 7, he goes back to the fathers. They were the witness. And then, of course, the eighth thing was, eighth thing was the fact that they were blessed for all of eternity by a new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. But it's just like today, when you dump the Word of God, which Israel did and we've done, then you lose all those things. But chapter 9 will begin, Paul begins to tell us that because of the Israel's unbelief and the hardness of their heart and of refusing to see what God had done for them. I'll stop right here for a moment. Some things never change. That's what gets us in a problem. Forgetting the things God has done for us. Israel forgets what God does for us and they go into apostasy. We forget the things that God has done for us. We quit coming to church. We get out of the Bible. We don't do what's right anymore. Some things never change, you see. I mean, it's just the way that it works. Instead of the nation of Israel becoming a vessel of honor, they become a vessel of dishonor. Romans chapter 9, verse 21 and 24. And in chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, now it says that just like uh, Israel is just like spiritually like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 32 and 33, Christ, who was the chief cornerstone, Matthew chapter 21, 42, has now been rejected. And now, because of their unbelief, as we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, Christ, as the stone made without hands, becomes the stumbling block for the nation of Israel. This is one of the great teachings for us today to understand what God is doing with the nation of Israel because how important they are. God is not finished with his people, but to see it, you must first see and understand what God is doing in his overall plan. You got to get back to that theme. Then right on a, right on a historical schedule that you can never beat. We go from Romans chapter 9 with the nation of Israel's rejection into chapter 10 where the gospel now goes to the Gentiles. 
And when we win somebody to Christ, most often generally, we wind up in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. It says, The only way that you hear that is through preaching. And that's just like, you know, Second Chronicles to Ezra and me and I in the Old Testament, the order of the books. In this particular case, the order of the chapters will lay it all out. So we go from the rejection in chapter 9 that Paul wants us to understand why. Then we go to the Gentile getting the gospel. He wants us to understand now why we got it. But he's not done yet. The next great chapter is chapter 11. And in chapter 11, that's where he deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. And he shows me and you. God's going to bring the nation of Israel back. He breaks it down in an incredible way. Romans chapter 11, verses 25, 26, 27, and 28 says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, that ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness for Jacob. The deliverer is Christ. Jacob is Israel. For this is my covenant, there it is, unto them that I shall take away their sin. That's concerning the gospel. See, he wants us to understand how, our, how we interplay right now. That's concerning the gospel. That's what you and I are in right now. The Jews aren't, but you and I follow the gospel. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake because they reject the gospel. But as touching the election, God's chosen people, they are the beloved of the Father's sake for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Clearly showing us that, you know, it, it's a thing where, and I always love this. He says, uh, verse 25, and not have you to be ignorant of this mystery, brethren. That's another one of the seven things that we as Christians are not to be ignorant of in the Bible, which God's people have no clue on, and they're ignorant of it. It's the nation of Israel and God dealing with the Jews. Now, he says in verse 25, blindness in part has happened to Israel. That's because in the church age, some Jews do get saved. Now, if you want, we don't have time to get into all this, but if you want the Old Testament model for this in the Gospels, it'll be Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Story of a blind man. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's where you would go. It's all through the New Testament. And, uh, you know, and in verse 25, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. That's the rapture. That's you and me getting raptured out of here when the Gentiles in God's mind has been satisfied him and now out we go. What happens after we go out? Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. There it is. He says, the deliverer shall come out of Zion. The deliverer shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. That's the second coming. Then he says in verse 27, this is my covenant with them. I'd be Hebrews 8 and 9. And then verse 28, he says, as concerning the gospel, uh, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are the blood of the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are not repentant. Simply he's saying this, in the church age, as Christians, the nation of Israel, concerning the gospel, they will be our enemies, because they reject Christ. 
They don't, they don't believe the New Testament, Christianity, in any way, shape, or form. So he's saying, I need to know that. He's saying, Bob, you need to know, as far as the gospel is concerned, they will be your enemy. But you also need to know, Bob, you're never to be their enemy. Why? Because I'm to understand where they're at, what God's doing with them. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, all the Old Testament passages, John chapter 11, I am to understand the big picture of what God is doing to restore his people and where I'm at in the church age in relationship to that. That is insight, perspective, and understanding. God's people have none of those things today. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And it's a thing where I am to know God's overall plan and where Israel fits in. So in John chapter 11, thought we'd never get there, didn't you? In John chapter 11, Lazarus will be a picture of this resurrection and the salvation of Israel. Lazarus will be a type of the nation of Israel who has died. And Christ now comes and resurrects him. And that is a picture, as I've told you, in the, in the Old Testament of that day. Laid out for you clearly. Now let's read our text today. And, uh, and then we'll jump into where we're at today. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 7 through 17. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go unto Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. And goest thou thither again? Jesus answered and said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in, in, in the night, he stumbleth, because there was no light in him. Now these things said he, after he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that he may wake him out of sleep. Then said the disciples, Lord, if, if he sleep, he shall do well. Now what he's saying here is the disciples, the Lord knows he's dead, but the Lord calls death sleep. The disciples ain't figured that out yet. So when he says he's not dead, he sleeps, they're saying, well, if he's just asleep then, that's pretty good. They're not getting it. Well, let's go on. And uh, how be it Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. There it is. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know, I always like that. There's so many times that I miss things that God is saying. You know what God has to do? He has to come and speak real plain to me. <laughs> you know, most people don't like that. Most people don't like authoritative speaking, authoritative preaching. But, you know, for me, I've always looked at it as I need to be straightened out. Yeah. I need to be corrected. And I don't mind when God speaks to me directly and plainly and tells me what I need to do because God knows I need it. Amen. And I'll tell you something else. I thank God that he cares enough to do it. Amen. You know, we all got people in our life that you try to tell some to do something and they don't do it. And after a while, you just give up on it and say, <laughs> figure it out yourself. You know, we all got people that, you know, that you try to witness to or you try to help them in their life. They got a bad marriage or they got bad kids or they got whatever. They need help. And you try to show them what the Bible says, and they just keep rejecting it. And, you know, and no matter how plain you speak to them, they just don't get it. 
And I've always thought to myself, God, don't, don't ever allow me to be that way. Because there's times that you need to speak plain to me. So there's times that I'm as goofy as, a, as an upside-down Twitter bird sitting on a light pole someplace. I need you to speak to me directly. And I thank God that he loves me enough that he doesn't do what I've done with people before out of frustration, or maybe you have. You just said, hey, <laughs> figure it out on your own, pal. I'm so glad he didn't do that to me. And I'm telling you, you see little things like that in your Bible that, and I can't speak for you, it means the world to me. Because I want him always when I don't get it, and there's plenty of times I don't get it, that he just speaks plain to me. Praise the Lord for that, for me. And then he says, verse 15, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found, and you want to mark this in your Bible, and when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for the word of God, for the good people here today. And I pray that uh, you open up the scriptures to us. Help us to understand the big picture of God dealing uh, with the nation of Israel, the theme of the Bible, how God has a theme and everything in that book we have to see and understand points toward that. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us today. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I told you last week that in the Gospels, there are four references to the second coming of Christ laid out in story form. Four direct references, stories that show you this day of the Lord. And amazing enough, and in this chapter, it's an amazing thing, I'm going to show you all four of those in John chapter 11. It's one of the most amazing things that you'll ever see in your life. So let's all get our trained glasses out of our glasses case and put them on, and here we go. Now, last week, I gave you verse 2 and 3. And I showed you how that he waits two days and then goes to Lazarus on the third day. And I took that opportunity to show you that he's illustrating to us one of the four ways that you find around the time of the coming of Christ is through that third day system. And that's based on 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which says one day with the Lord as a thousand years, as a thousand years is one day. And But what I want you to notice now, oh, here's where this chapter, you got to really get into this and got to put your, your glasses on and you got to look to the inside because look, 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 look. In verse 17, he says he's still dead on the fourth day. Now, well, let me show you how you put this together. Now, last week I told you, as I said, there were four different studies in the Bible that you could get all the information that you needed around the approximate time of the second coming of Christ. Because the Bible says of the times and seasons, brother, I have no need to write unto you. And, uh, and so 
you'll want to watch this. Now, the first system that you have, and I gave you this last week, but bear with me, was an hour system out of Matthew chapter 20. The second one was a watch system out of Mark chapter 13 based on four watches. Then I showed you that there was a seven-day system, which is found in Genesis 1-2 and again in Revelation chapter 20. And then last week, because we only got into the first couple of verses, I laid out the third-day system for you. All four of these are in chapter 11. And God put them in there so anybody paying attention would see the third day. And then look what he says. Now here's what you got. And it's an incredible what God has packed into this chapter. He just told us that he was going to head out on the third day. But then he tells us in verse 9 in his conversation, are there not 12 hours in a day? Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are there not 12 hours in a day? Is that what he said? What? No. So who said no, sir? What what does it say? The day. day. See, you got to catch that. He's not talking about just any day. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? He's talking about the second coming. That's a key. That's something a trained eye would see. That's something that should jump out at you once you understand about the day. Now, he says, are not there 12 hours in the day? Now, in your Bible, in the New Testament, there are two systems based on this 12 hours in the day. The first one's in Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, you have the story of God sending his workers into the field or the world to do his, to his work, and it's based on a 12-hour day. John chapter 11, verse 9. The story starts out at 6 a.m. in the morning and runs through to 6 p.m. in the evening. That's 12 hours. This will be the days, and this example will be showing us the leading up to the, uh, to the 12 hours, to leading up to the second coming of Christ, through a 12-hour day that he makes a reference to in verse 9. Then, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 through 37, now you have again another 12-hour day. But here, it's 6 p.m. in the evening to 6 a.m. in the morning, and it's based on four watches. Now, these four watches will also represent the days leading up to the third day or the day of the Lord. So, where you have the first watch is the even watch, That would run from 6 to 9, 6 o'clock in the evening to 9 o'clock in the evening. And that would bring us up to about the time of Christ, up to about 500 A.D. The second watch is the midnight watch. That'd pick up at 9 and go to 12. 
And that'll pick us up in time from about 500 at the beginning of the Dark Ages up to about 1000 A.D. The next one will be the cock crowing, and that'll pick it up from 12 to 2 in the morning. And uh, that'll run from 1000 A.D. to 1500. Now, if you talk to somebody uh, that knows about nighttime, they will tell you that the darkest part of the night will be from about 12 to 2. After that, you start moving into the tweed dialogue morning, you know, and things like that. But the darkest part of your night will be from 12 to 2. It just so happens in our four watches and putting this into history that this will line up from 500 to 1500, which will be in history, yes, the Dark Ages. You can't beat the Bible. And then the fourth watch will start about 3 and go up to the morning, uh, watch, and that'll be around 1500 up to around uh, the time of the rapture of the church and then moving into the second coming of Christ. Now, if you want a little extra study to take some time, these four watches, it's a great study in itself. Because if you go back to Isaiah chapter 21, verse 11, Ezekiel chapter 33, 6, and obviously the book of Habakkuk, uh, you'll find where it talks about watches, watchmen, and what they're supposed to be doing. Now, trained eye. There is a reason why one of them starts out at 6 o'clock in the morning and goes to 6 in the evening, and the other one starts at 6 in the evening and goes to 6 in the morning. There's a reason for that. We don't have time to get into that today, but I'm just telling you. Everything in your Bible is there for a purpose, and he just didn't say, well, I used the one, so now I'll use the other. It's there to show you something. And in this church, my job, the men and women who work with me in ministry, it's our job to help you younger ones see and learn your Bible by putting it together, understanding it, this is the way that it goes. Now, this is how you put your Bible together. One piece at a time. Uh, one doctrine at a time. It's like when I, when, I, when I talk about building a church. You build a church one couple at a time, one person at a time. You build a ministry by one person at a time, dealing with them. You don't look at them in mass, even though they may be, but you look at the individuals and you find out what their needs are and then you minister them on that basis. That's exactly the way you build a church or any ministry within a church that's concerning with people, you build it one at a time. You give those people one at a time, one doctrine at a time, one piece of the Bible at a time. And this is why, as you saw through here, I'm taking this chapter, as other chapters, in sections. Everything I teach you in Bible Institute, we're going through sections. Now, I'd like to tell you that I learned that from going to Bible college and seminary, that the professor told me that, but that would not be the truth. From all blessings flow. <laughs> that would not be the truth. I learned it from World War II. But you might know. When I survived the Battle of Gettysburg, <laughs> years ago, at I, and and I, I give you kids history lessons. I know it, maybe it's boring to you, but history to me is, 
is the lifeblood of, of everything that I do. In World War II, before America got in the war, Britain, when Hitler invaded France, Britain had a concordia or an agreement with France that they would go to war. It was, you know, the, the trilunial lateral, lateral alliances that they have. So Britain declared war on Germany. Now, Britain's an island nation. She does not have the natural resources. She certainly didn't have the armaments and all the things that she needed, but since she was thrust into World War II, she already had a lot of troops over in, in France, and uh, she almost lost all of them, that, uh, a good half of them, except for God in the miracle of Dunkirk. And some of you probably saw the movie Dunkirk. Uh, to me, that's not the best one. If you want the best movie on Dunkirk, it was done in the early 60s, and it's simply called Dunkirk. And uh, Alex doesn't like it, so he leaves when he just doesn't get what he wants. But anyway, <laughs> Dunkirk. And uh, they were trapped there. And all of, the, all of the people from England, the yachtsmen, people had little boats, bigger boats, ships. They sailed across the English Channel under Luftwaffe strafings and all of the Germans, and they evacuated 600,000 British troops that would have went into captivity and saved Britain from a disaster. Most people don't know that. You want a little tidbit of history? Another one? You want a little tidbit of history? You want another one? Who remembers the sinking of the Titanic? How many were on it? Now, I'll say again. You want a real understanding of the disaster of the Titanic? Don't get Leonardo DiCaprio with his fortification down in the hole there in the, in the field. That's ridiculous. Get the one that was made in 1956 called A Night to Remember. When they made that in 1956, they had over 80 or 90 actual survivors that were still alive from the Titanic. And in this story, you will find that true story, that the first officer, his name was Lightfeller, he was the highest ranking guy that survived the Titanic. And when, he, when he, he, he got rescued, he was a sailor, went back to sea, and in the Battle of Britain in Dunkirk, this guy had a yacht, and he was the guy who led the yachts over to pick up the guys that were the survivors on the Dunkirk beach. I mean, just little things like that. Anyway, Germany was waging a war, which is called the uh, War of, of the Battle of the North Atlantic. Admiral Donuts, who was the head of the Navy guy, uh, and also later started Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> he, he had over 300 U-boats, submarines, and he knew that he could break the lifeline because America was sending ships over with stuff that Britain needed. So he put what they called wolf packs together. See? And they were sinking American ships 600,000 tons a month. Nothing hardly was getting through. And in America at that time, it took a year to build a ship. Someplace along the line, and this is where I got this, this is, I built my ministry on this, 
somewhere along the line, around 1943 or 44, somebody came up with the idea in building ships differently. That all across this country, they would build different, this factory would build all this component for this ship, this factory would build all this component, and all across this country, they were building every component completely with the wires in them and everything that needed to go on that ship. So when they laid the keel of that ship, which took about, uh, you know, no time at all, and when they ran it down the ramps, by the end of World War II, because they were putting the component pieces all here and then putting them together on that ship, they were turning out a ship every three weeks. Now, I saw that, and I thought to myself, you know what? If that works to win World War II... That's what I need to be doing in the Bible. So you know when I started? Instead of just trying to give you the whole Bible and teach you the whole Bible and just bore you to death with it, I started breaking it down into components. And what they did is they brought all these components to where their ship was and then they bolted all the separate pieces together and voila, they had a complete ship. I take the Bible and break it down in sections, teach you each section, put all the wires in, put all everything in you need and all you got to do is go home and do what? Bolt it together. See? Now it's 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 things like that. Now you got three of the four, according to John chapter eleven here, all in one chapter. And chapter eleven dealing with the Israel's dying spiritually being resurrected, like we saw in Romans chapter eleven, and I've given you other places. Now look at this. Here's our fourth one. You're going to love this. You want to get this in your Bible. I've shown you the third day. Then I showed you the two 12-hour days. Now here comes why he waits and says what he says, that he's still dead on the fourth day. Now this will be our seven-day system. Based on Second Peter, where he says, one day with the Lord is a thousand years one day. And I've told you before that you have 7,000 years of, of history. I know the world tells you that you have billions and billions of years and that we all came from amoebas and, you know, I once was a monkey in a banyan tree and now I'm a professor with a Ph.D. I get that. <laughs> but that's not the case. Man has only been here 6,000 years. Not millions of years. There's no cavemen. There's no, well, maybe there were, but there's no men like they say that there is. All the dinosaurs, they fit into God's plan. There's no problem with that. That's a good Thursday night Bible question. But anyway, 6,000 years. And then, of course, the last 7,000 years is going to be the millennial reign of Christ. Six days for man, the Lord is going to have his day. That day, day of the Lord, going to be the seventh. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I want to show you this. This is incredible. This is trained eye stuff. Now, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God begins in chapter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 down, or 3 on down through here, in chapter 2 also. God begins his restructuring. And we talked about this Thursday night with a great question that the guy asked. God begins his reconstruction of what he already has created but got formless and void in one and two, and now it's all coming together again and he's redoing everything or refashioning it. 
He does this in seven days. Really, he does it in six days, and then he takes the seventh day off. And of course, um, this will show us that man is going to be on, his, on this earth 6,000 years, trained eye. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay, let's go back here. Let's look at day one. Verse 3, 4, 5. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light that it was good. Uh, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now this is clearly tells us this is the first day. We'll go through these quickly. The first day, light shows up. That light is the glory of Christ, the darkness, the night is the unholy glory of the devil. That's what you got. It's showing you from Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning that the issue is going to be light versus darkness and destroy it. Chapter day two, verses six, seven, and eight. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, this is God restructuring the second heaven, or what we would know in a common terminology as the universe. This is God working now in what we know as outer space. Uh, just to throw this out, and we'll come back here in just a little bit, trained eye, trained eye. Uh, you'll find that uh, uh, he said up there that uh, God saw the light was good in the first day. You'll find it in the third day. You'll find it in the fourth day. You'll find it in the fifth day, the sixth day, seventh day. You do not find God saying on this day that it was good. There's a reason for that. Trained eye. Even in the morning with the second day. Then we'll move into the third day. This will be verse 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he sees. And God saw that it was good. There it is. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass. I bet you a lot of people like that verse. And herb yielding seed and the fruit tree, uh, uh, tree uh, yielding fruit after his kind. Notice it says his kind. It, if it was just a normal tree he was talking about, it would say after its kind. Why does he talk about a tree bringing fruit and he says after his kind? Trained eye. You want to study that sometime. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs yielding seed and fruit of the tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herbs yielding seed after his kind, there it is again, uh, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, third time's a charm, hopefully, and God saw that it was good, there it is, and the evening and morning were the third day. Now, fourth day. Verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament, outer space, of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. 
and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 16, you want to mark this. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that'll be the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that'll be the moon. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw, there it is, God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now the fifth day, verses 20 through 23. And God said, let us, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, the fowl that may fly upon the earth and open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. There it is again. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and uh, uh, let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and morning were the fifth day. Okay? Sixth day. Verse 24 to 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures out of his kind, cattle and creeping things, the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made uh, the beast of the earth after his kind, the cattle of their kind, and everything that creepeth upon. Notice it's the cattle's after a hymn again. There's two hymns in this chapter. And one is an amazing grace, and the rule is called up yonder, I'll be there. There's two people, personalities in these, this chapter. It started all the way back with dividing the light from the darkness, and then you see a hymn here and a hymn here. And most of God's people just say, him ha, <laughs> and never get it together. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth to do it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which the fruit is a tree, yielding fruit to you to become for you for meat. Uh, and every, every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw that, uh, that he had made, and behold, everything was It's different. Everything else was just good. There's something about this that's very good. Do you know what it is? Could you figure out what it is? See, this is the trained eye that we should have. Little things like that. Now, I'm not expecting you young Christians to get all this, but I am expecting me to teach it to you. And I'm expecting you to get it. Okay. Very good in the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then we come into chapter two, and this will be day number seven. Oh, watch it all change here. Chapter two, verses one and two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day. Obviously went to Florida. Bermuda, some place to kick back after the laborious work of working for six days. You're laughing at that, but I've heard a lot of guys just say, well, God was tired after this, and so he just needed a break. No, 
if you're a pastor saying that, you're tired and you need a break. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now this is where we get our seventh day. And it all changes. Here God ends his work. God rests on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day and he set it sanctified apart from the other six. The seventh day is so special to God that through the rest of the Old Testament, he does everything by sevens. The Old Testament feasts are in a pattern of sevens. Noah was sevens. The generations are all built and everything that Israel does are seven. Tribulation, seven years. Church history, seven periods. Covenants with Israel, seven. And then the new one, but it's the seven for when we're here. And it's everything is based on sevens. Why? I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's because that this day represents the millennium. And the millennium, the characteristic of that thousand-year reign is all the world is at rest. That's what the picture is. Okay. Here we go. When I... My, my dog does when I take her out in the morning. Here we go. Now remember, Jesus shows up and Lazarus has been in the grave four days already. So, verse 17. Looking at this, we see that when we go back to Genesis, day one, day two, day three, day four, what happened? On day four, the sun showed up. We say it again. On day four, the sun showed up. He's called the son of righteousness with healing in his wings in Malachi 4. He's called the day star, which arises in your hearts. He's called the morning star in the book of Revelation. And just as the fourth day of creation, or God restructuring, on the fourth day the sun shows up, Lazarus is in the grave on the fourth day, and the sun shows up. And in history... Christ shows up on planet Earth on the fourth day. According to Usher's chronology, he's born on 4 B.C. That's the fourth 1,000 year from day one of the first creation. So in the fourth day from Genesis, the sun shows up. And 4,000 years after that day, praise God, the sun shows up. So it's a picture in this story of Lazarus being dead in the grave for four days and bless God, the sun shows up. Now, we're not done yet. He may have been born in 4 B.C., as they say, according to Usher. But then we have the next day, and that is the fifth day. Now, the fifth day will be 
5,000 years after the first day. Christ may have been born on the fourth day, but he is crucified on the fifth day. And lo and behold, my, my, my. When we get to the fifth day, life shows up. And you know the example that he uses for life showing up on the fifth day? Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. Great whale. And you're told that the only sign given to Israel was the sign of Jonas. Because Jonah is a picture of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a whale representing the resurrection of his death on the fifth day. 5,000 years after the first day. The fourth day, the sun shows up. The fifth day, life shows up. Then we have the sixth day, and man shows up. And this is where he says, it's very good. Now, we've got just a few minutes left here. Anybody want to be brave enough to raise your hand and tell me why he says it's very good on that sixth day when man shows up? It's okay. What? I can't hear you. Getting there close? Yes, yes. No, 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 yes. No? Why is it very good on the sixth day when man shows up after the fifth day when Christ died on the cross and brought us life? The reason why it's very good because now it's going to be Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now he's going to find a place of rest in the church age, in you and me as believers. And now we have something that is so special that the Old Testament saint never had. You know what it is? Fellowship with him. Him in me and me in him. And that's why the day man shows up in six in numerology is the number of man. That's why it's so important that when man shows up, it is very good because now the Holy Spirit of God is going to indwell. And that's where the real fellowship is going to be. Incredible. <laughs> I mean incredible. Man will be on this earth for 6,000 years. 4,000 of it is the Old Testament. Christ shows up in 4 B.C., right there toward the, uh, toward the end. And it's a thing because you're going down in the Old Testament. And then the fifth day, life shows up. And then the sixth day, man shows up in a special relationship because of what happened on Calvary's cross through the sign given to Jonah, the whale, the resurrection of Christ. And then we have the seventh day. There's two things about this seven days. Every day God says it was good except day, day two. And the reason for that, so you'll know, is the fact that this is the creation, not creation, but the reconstruction of outer space. And we know from the book of Daniel, the book of Jude, and the book of Job, 
that this is the devil's domain for the next 6,000 years. This is where he operates. When Daniel and Daniel, Daniel's praying and he's trying to get a prayer answered and the angel can't get down, he says, I'm coming from heaven down to the earth and a prince of the powers held me up for 21 days. That's his domain. That's why in Genesis, when he gives man dominion, it's over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and the birds, never outer space. You know why? Somebody else's domain. So he, trained eye, tells you that when he redoes that, it ain't good. It isn't good. And of course, and then on every one of the days, he says the evening and the morning. Day one, evening and the morning. Day two, evening and the morning. Day three, evening and the morning. Day four, evening and the morning. Day five, evening and the morning. Day six, evening and the morning. The seventh day, you will not find the evening and the morning. You know why? That's God's eternal day. That's that day, the day, the day of the Lord that starts out in the morning and never has an evening to it. You can't beat that Bible. I mean, you just can't beat that Bible. Now, that's serious Bible study for serious Bible students. This is where I want all of you to be at some point in time. I, I know not all of you will be. I know, I know, I know. Not all of you will ever get there. I'm sorry, I wish everybody could, but I, I get it, I understand. But the bottom line is this. This is where this church is at. I want you to have insight trained eye and understanding when it comes to the scripture. Now, I, I told you, we're talking about doctrinal stuff. We're talking about stuff that's dealing with Israel. I get all of that. But I am telling you, the trained eye and insight does not stop looking at John chapter 11 in Israel. It will be used in every aspect of your life to keep your marriage, to keep your family, to keep your kids to keep your own self where you need to be with the Lord. Just like they kicked that thing into the end zone when they should have kicked it to somebody and let him run off the clock and then gave the Kansas City Chiefs three seconds to do something that would have been impossible. One little mistake, one little miscue, one little, one little play, they lost the game. And it only takes one little thing in most of our lives to put us out of the game of life. God saved you and me for a purpose. There's a reason behind it. There's a purpose to it. He gave you the institution of marriage, family, all of those things for a reason. And they get fractured because God's people miss the little things. And he tells you that it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. And that's what happened. Well, we're going to hold up there. We've got enough today to give you a headache for the next month. You guys who are going to help me, please sign up. I only got two guys here, and we'll get with you this week. Everybody else that is part of the women's deal, head downstairs right now. Sit with your teams, and I'll be down there, and we'll be out of here it's 20 to 1. We'll be out of here by 1 o'clock and watch the Chiefs lose at 2. Let's hit it.